Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. This is Rough Translation from NPR. I'm going to guess that not many of you have gotten to see up close a fighter jet refueling in midair, miles above the ground. It's actually kind of an amazing process. You'd be flying along, and suddenly this tanker plane comes and matches your speed. And then it's like two birds mating in mid-flight. This thing called a drogue sticks out and attaches to the other plane that is flying at high speed, high altitude. Like a little umbilical cord that's flapping around in the wind. A drogue chute? Drogue chute, yep. Do you have any idea what that means? (laughs) Like a little chute. Raj Shah has seen this firsthand. He's an F-16 pilot. Certain types of planes can only refuel from certain types of tankers. Some refuel faster and slower than others. So there's a lot of complexity. Planes actually refuel at different speeds, at different altitudes. They use different amounts of fuel. So there's a lot of math. Raj did not think much about that math at the time. He didn't have to worry about who was scheduling all these pit stops in the sky. All he needed to know was that he'd fuel up and fly off back to the war in Iraq. But years later, in 2016, he ended up seeing the actual place where these refueling flights were planned at the Air Operations Center based in Aludeid Air Force Base in Qatar, which when you first walk in, it looks very impressive. Think uh, NASA mission control, big hall, lots of computer screens. But sort of off of that hall is a windowless room. It's a small room. Maybe there was, you know, eight or nine cubicles in it. Air Force recruitment posters on the walls. It feels like something designed out of the 1980s. Uh, Let me guess, fluorescent tube lights? Absolutely. And in this stripped-down room, he sees about a dozen people gathered around a whiteboard. The whiteboard is a 10-foot by 5-foot rectangle with lots of little lines and squares and probably... A hundred, you know, little one-inch magnetic pucks. Written on the pucks are the name of fighter jets and refueling tankers. And they just move them around. This is where they plan how and when to refuel hundreds of jets each day. You see two guys standing at the board with dry erase markers in their hands, two guys sitting in front of laptops... And in order to get data from one system into the other, they were manually reading it on one screen and typing it on the other screen. So, like, they're copying a string of very important numbers that mean someone getting fuel or not getting fuel and their airplane's still flying, and they're copying those by hand from one screen to another screen. And then you don't want to have a mistake, so then you need another person watching it to make sure it got typed the right way. (sighs) Wow. This is Rough Translation's Homefront, our season about the civilian-military divide with Quill Lawrence. Today, a story of how Raj Shah set out to banish the whiteboard, to write some simple code to do all this faster and better and save some taxpayer money. But to solve this problem is anything but simple. He'll need to win over a senator, a gonker, and the Secretary of Defense to cross the tech mill divide. Did you have a moment where you're just thinking, I was one of those planes waiting for that fuel, and (laughs) this is how? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When Homefront continues. 
On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR, NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Rough Translation. I'm calling about home front. Hey, this is Gregory, just to say thank you for all of your emails and voicemails and phone calls about how this home front season is resonating with you. Please keep those conversations going. We love hearing from you. We are listening. I was an alien visiting another planet. Now, back to the show. We're back with Rough Translation's Homefront. I'm Quill Lawrence. Long before Rod Shaw ever got a look at the whiteboard in the bowels of the Air Force Command Center, he'd been a witness to how military technology could lag behind even like the GPS in your car. A case in point, when he was flying F-16s in Iraq, the pilots were actually worried that their built-in mapping software was so bad that they might accidentally cross an international border without even knowing it. That same sort of era, though, you could rent a Cessna and fly with basically the predecessor of a iPad and get all that data. Some F-16 pilots started strapping tablet computers to their knees in the cockpit so they could use Google Maps. And because this wasn't approved military hardware, they had to sneak them in. Fortunately, Raj is the kind of guy who enjoys breaking the rules. (laughs) Everybody wants to be Han Solo. (laughs) Raj is a Star Wars fan, in addition to being an Air Force reservist. And in between deployments, he's also a tech entrepreneur. He didn't want to just complain about the military's bad tech. He wanted to fix it. But Raj had a trust issue. As someone working in Silicon Valley, he'd seen so many military buyers come and go. We used to call it tech tourism. So what's a tech tourist? A tech tourist is someone that comes in and visits the valley, wants to see all the greatest technology, be in awe by it, but then not actually take any action. He gives me this example. One of his startups makes software that could detect if a hacker from Russia or China or wherever had broken into a network and was moving around inside it. And the Pentagon was interested. They were very excited. You'd hear immensely positive feedback from the general or the senior leader. They'd love it. they say, this is great. I want it. I'm going to get my action officer on it. Okay, action officer. That sounds promising. Sounds like somebody's actually going to do something. And then nine months later... We had a subsequent meeting with that same general and team. And the conversation was the exact same. And so it just dawned, look, there has been no progress in nine months. We could have built, deployed, and had this thing scaled across your whole enterprise in like a month. This is just not going anywhere. And quite frankly, after the 10th meeting, we just stopped taking meetings. The Pentagon was just too hard of a customer. This rift between Silicon Valley and the military was already pretty wide when someone widened it even more. 
Edward Snowden, who you probably remember was a civilian tech consultant to the CIA who leaked documents proving that the U.S. government was spying on its citizens. Silicon Valley was rattled at the revelation that their users were being spied on. And the military lost confidence in civilian tech people like Snowden coming into their ranks and spilling their secrets. Things got so bad that the head of the Pentagon ended up making a rare visit to the Valley. Please join me in warmly welcoming U.S. Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter. Thank you. This 2015 speech at Stanford University was surprisingly big news. Journalists at the time noted it was the first visit to Silicon Valley by a sitting Secretary of Defense in two decades. History shows that we've succeeded in finding solutions to these kinds of tough questions when our commercial, civil, and government sectors work together as partners. And the secretary is here to say, hey, you know, the military and the tech world, we used to be tight. Like during World War II, when the Manhattan Project, the MIT Radiation Laboratory, and others... Or remember the internet? Vint Cerf fathered the internet, well, a researcher at DARPA. But those days of collaboration and shared commitment seem to be of the past. We need to drill holes in the wall that I think exists and has been built up over the years between the Department of Defense and the commercial and scientific sector. And to drill these holes... We must renew the bonds of trust. So I am creating something we call the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. First of a kind for us... D-I-U-X. Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. I love that extra (laughs) last word. Just... It makes it ungrammatical and fairly top secrety. I thought it was great. Raj Shah remembers that speech. Here was someone that understands the valley to say, we need your help. We need your innovation. You could think of DIUX as, as kind of like a Pentagon outpost in Silicon Valley. It's a few miles from Google. It's their embassy to Techlandia. The reason that Silicon Valley is so successful is that it has the right people in it, but there's proximity uh, as well. There's an ecosystem out here. Everyone's in the same general area, which not only helps forge relationships, but also helps spread new ideas. The poor guys had no credit cards, had no budgets, had no money. Literally, it was six months. Retired Colonel Peter Newell is a decorated combat commander who had a bunch of tech problems he wanted to solve. So he's excited to see DIUX until he actually goes and sets foot in DIUX. And he can't believe what the employees are telling him. I have no credit card even to buy toilet paper for the bathrooms in the building. I have no furniture to sit on. I got no phone number. (laughs) I got no website. I have no internet. They're using their personal cell phones as Wi-Fi hotspots. They were opening the windows in the building and putting the hotspot on the windowsill so that it could get connection. You're surprised that you look at me and they're dumbfounded. It's, no, that's not possible. Yes, it is. Uh, it was very embarrassing. It's like every time you bring someone in, we had to kind of apologize up front that we had no furniture and we didn't even have a conference room. Enrique Oti was one of the earliest employees at this new Pentagon embassy. It was fine for the first month or two, and people thought it was kind of funny, and it's like, you guys are like real startups, like, yep. But once you get six, seven, eight months into it, it's no longer a joke. It now becomes a joke on us. 
But things started to change. In fact, a lot would change when DIUX got a new boss. Raj Shah, the F-16 pilot turned tech entrepreneur who hates tech tourists and said he was never going to take meetings with the Pentagon ever again. I mean, is this like asking Han Solo to suddenly take over, or actually maybe more accurately Princess Leia, who is, you know, the leader of the Rebel Alliance officially? Yeah, actually, first among equals, yeah. DIUX may have been set up as an embassy to Silicon Valley, but Raj believed that the real act of diplomacy that they needed to pull off was within their own ranks. And to convince the military to take them seriously, he felt that they needed to build a piece of technology that the military would actually use. I wanted to be able to show tangible results. Technology or innovation that is now directly helping some you know, man or woman in uniform do their job better. And that's what would, would change DIU's reputation. Exactly. This is a place that will get things done that matter for our servicemen and women in uniform. Which brings us back to that whiteboard with the pucks. That little windowless room in the Air Operations Center in Qatar that Rod Shaw visited in 2016 and learned that in-air refueling was being calculated by hand. He finds out that each of these airmen around the whiteboard has a job title. By the way, the Air Force uses airmen as a gender-neutral term. The planners move the magnetic pucks around the board. There's a thumper who's in charge of creating the master air attack planning toolkit. And there's a gonker who enters the data into a spreadsheet called... (laughs) The gonculator. All right, look, no excuses. How much longer is it going to take to finish this gonculator? Now, as any fan of the 1960s sitcom Hogan's Heroes might remember... Gonculator is slang for useless gadget. Gonker is almost like calling yourself the doohickey operator. A gonculator, Major. We're forcing our airmen to step back in time to fight a war. Enrique says one of the problems with the whiteboard, besides it being a whiteboard... You fall, you rub against it, you erase part of the plan. ...is that you can't adjust the plan if something comes up. And there's a war going on. Stuff comes up. An airplane breaks or there's weather or there's something going on. You know, a storm might roll in. A plane has a maintenance failure. And so that means any changes to the plan are also manually done. Manually planning the offload of hundreds of thousands of pounds of fuel. If it takes you 12 hours to plan the day's missions and a few more hours to type it all in, they're starting over from scratch. So what do you do when that master plan no longer applies? You need to send a whole extra plane. They call it scrambling a tanker. Each scramble costs the government about $250,000 in fuel and maintenance and to fly these birds. And these scrambles happened all the time. That's when Raj called me from the desert and said, okay, you guys are going to build a tanker tool. The way that Enrique and his team talk about this tanker tool, it's so much more than just about making fuel delivery more efficient or cheaper. For them, it was their chance to show the military a totally different way of building tech. They think of themselves as rebels. We were those rebels trying to move more quickly, trying to get beyond the status quo to achieve what was a very important mission. And their rebellion is aimed against something called the program office. In the military, we have an entire uh, section of the military responsible for acquiring technologies and delivering them to the warfighters. So 
F-16s, you have a program office that builds F-16s. For the Navy, you've got a, a submarine, a new class of submarine. You'll have a program office established to build that new class of submarine. And so same thing for the Air Operations Center. That office had been working, I'm not joking, for 10 years to update the Air Operations Center, a projected $750 million overhaul of the whole center. And in those 10 years, they had delivered nothing to the field. And this is not unusual. This is traditional systems engineering approach. You want to make sure everything's perfect the first time it rolls out to the field. So you have to do a lot of security checks, a lot of quality control checks. Could take 8, 10, 15 years. And that is traditionally how the DOD has operated. DIUX, their whole mission is to do things differently. We did not follow traditional acquisitions processes. For us, that was a badge of honor. Their first act of rebellion was not to sit around for a few years planning the perfect tanker tool. They got in a room with some coders and they made something. They showed it to the Air Force team that was using it. That was a first. Got feedback, made some changes. In other words, a Silicon Valley iterative approach that was not how the military does things. Within a few months, they had a tool that worked and that the command center liked. What they discovered was because it was so fast to be able to build the plan that when an emergency happened, rather than scrambling a tanker, they could just reflow the plan and say, okay, tanker, go here for a little bit, and it all would work. And they could have two to three less scrambles per day. Remember, each scramble was a quarter million dollars. The tool cost, I think, about a million and a half. So the thing paid for itself in a week. Raj had done what he set out to do, to build something that the military could actually use, to prove that Silicon Valley approaches to building tech could work with the military. The reaction from the program office? We saw this tanker planning tool and we thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of neat, but it's one application, right? <laughs> Stephen Wirt is the head of the program office that was in charge of overhauling the whole air operations center. We had been beating ourselves against the wall for more than 10 years and hadn't delivered anything at all. And now Air Force Brass are hearing about this tanker tool that's getting a lot of attention, and they're comparing it to his progress. Raj Shaw told the chief <laughs> that um, the DIU could do what we were trying to do and could do it for one-tenth the cost and do it in less than a year. Raj confirms he did say that, but says he was talking only about the tanker planning tool part. The timing is especially awkward because just as Raj is celebrating his success— Steve Wirt's program is three years behind schedule, and they're requesting that Congress appropriate an additional $65 million to keep going. We were uh, trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that there was a lot of attention on this thing called tanker planning tool while we were struggling mightily to do something much, much, much larger and more complex. So that contrast created tension. Steve has been with the Air Force for decades. And he knows how to defend his turf from any DIUX upstarts. So he talks to the Air Force, and they agree they'll stick to the original plan, which for Raj is a big blow. The office that was running it and the contractor was saying, okay, hey, thanks for your demonstration. This was great. We'll take some of that learning and incorporate it. But we have a program. Like We've, we've spent money. We're ready. We'll be ready in two years. Well, this is working right now. Why do we need to turn it off, go back to the whiteboard, and wait for two years. I mean, was there a moment of, God damn it, this is going to get blocked? Of course. <laughs> 
We were nervous that all the great work that the team was doing would end up being just a science project and not get continued. We spent all this time, maybe we won't get there. Raj realized that their tactic to build something that worked didn't change the military culture. For all their innovation, they were out in the cold. We're those guys that were in, I think it was the second Star Wars, or some rebel base in a snowy, distant land that has almost been forgotten. And that's us, where we get brought back to the fight. What brings them back into the fight? A tech tour. When Rough Translation's Homefront continues. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. In the beginning of 2017, things looked pretty bleak for Enrique and Raj and their rebel alliance. But they did have a powerful ally, late Senator John McCain, former Navy pilot and then the head of the Armed Services Committee, which controls military budgets. McCain had heard about the tanker tool, and his office was putting pressure on Steve Wirt of the program office. And Steve, it turns out, was also feeling frustrated after 10 years of working on this with nothing to show for it. So I think there was a great willingness to try something different because we couldn't possibly be doing any worse than we were doing at the time. So you're under pressure? Yes. Meanwhile, Enrique was realizing it wasn't enough to just create some cool software. A lot of us early on, myself included, kind of had this rebellion aspect of everybody's against us. We're just going to do it. We don't care what they say. The reality is that creates more enemies, and it actually slows you down. And so we started going with the approach of it's a revolution. It's about winning the hearts and minds. So that April, Enrique Oti rolls out the red carpet, dusts the proverbial embassy curtains, and invites the program office to visit DIUX in California. I think it was 14 people. That was your tour group? Were you like standing in front of them with a, an umbrella saying, now yeah. we're heading up to Google? And, yeah, 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 that's me showing them around. <laughs> and on that tech tour... Steve Wirt, the big boss. I'd never been to San Francisco before, so that part was interesting. Enrique leads them into an office unlike any Air Force office Steve has ever been to. There's open tables instead of cubicles. There are dogs in the office, people wearing casual clothes, including hoodies. And the young lady who was doing the paired demo with him had blue hair. <laughs> 
Beyond the blue hair, he sees a team that's doing so much less advanced planning and so much more just making things and patching up vulnerabilities quickly. And it took me, I would say, less than an hour to realize that this is what we should be doing for software, not what the Department of Defense had been doing for many, many years. He was sold. He went back to his Air Force base a convert. Two weeks later, I'm back here in the office and a software program's in front of me telling me, we're going to do a year or two of development, followed by a year or two of test, and four years from now, and we'll deliver something. And my answer was, no, we're not going to do it that way anymore. So what happened on that tour? How did they win them over? Well, Enrique O.T. has a theory he'd actually prepared carefully for this moment many months before, when instead of hiring coders from Silicon Valley to make this tanker tool, he called up his friends in the Air Force. People I knew said, hey, do you know any airmen that know how to write code? And I was able to find these six. And why did you want airmen in particular, who I know are airmen and airwomen, but why did you want them as opposed to getting coders from right there in the valley? It was to make a statement. If we had grabbed coders from Silicon Valley to come in and do this, they probably would have done it faster, I'm sure of it, and probably would have been better quality if we'd picked the right coders. But then the Air Force and senior leadership would have looked at and said, oh, well, this is just the same as, as outsourcing or contracting. There's nothing new here. Were you making this statement consciously when you did that? Yes. It was very conscious. Enrique said he'd realized something in all his efforts at diplomacy. He needed coders that military people could trust. Good quality software actually requires trust. It requires the, the leaders and the users to trust that that software development team is going to build what they need. Uh, and I felt the best way to demonstrate that was with military members. Steve, the program office boss, says, yeah, that was nice to see coders from the Air Force, but it wasn't what changed his mind. What really shocked Steve was just seeing how this office worked up close. And that's what DIU was intended to do, right? Expose the Department of Defense to new ideas. DIU-X, which is now just called DIU, they've dropped the X for experimental, was created by the Secretary of Defense with this idea that the military needed more proximity to Silicon Valley. That was the part that was really shocking to me, is that the Department of Defense had to learn this from completely outside the department, which very quickly leads to the next thought, which is what else do we not know about? So actually on that same trip out to San Francisco, the program office people and Enrique and his team go into a room and decide what they're going to name this unit. Because in a very Silicon Valley way, it's important to have a cool name. And the cool name that they come up with it by a popular vote is Kessel Run, which, of course, everyone knows is a reference to Han Solo's speed record. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's a ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. I have outrun Imperial Starships. One of the uh, mottos they have now is that we make products that airmen love to use, which is such a Silicon Valley thought, right? Okay, people are going to love to use this product. I don't think anyone ever in the entire history of the U.S. military thought about loving <laughs> really that many pieces of military hard or software. Kessel Run isn't just doing the tanker tool anymore. 
the Air Force tasked them with the whole upgrade of the Air Operations Center. And Kessel Run has inspired spinoffs in other parts of the Air Force and other branches of the military. Steve Wirt now runs Kessel Run, and when people from the Pentagon come to visit, he's the one who gives them the tour. We have nearly every week distinguished visitors visiting Kessel Run. Uh, Everybody wants to see it. It's open, collaborative space. There's food, snacks, ping pong and foosball table. A beer tap, of course. And then, invariably, those tech tourists leave. And they don't necessarily support the budget. Kessel Run's been nearly zeroed out a couple times. That's the frustrating thing, is realizing how much visibility it's getting and how supportive senior leaders are versus uh, the sort of budget process. That disconnect is frustrating. The old way of acquiring software is still the norm in the military. That disconnect between the military and big tech. I'll be honest, I don't think we've crossed that divide yet. Next week on Rough Translations Homefront, Marla Ruzica was not the kind of person you'd expect to meet in a war zone. She bounced up to me and announced, hi, I'm Marla, and just sort of dragged me onto the dance floor. But after her, war would never be the same. Today's episode was produced by Matt Ozug. Jess Jang co-reported the story. Our editor is Lou Okowski. Sound designed by Alicia Chan, who also tirelessly recorded and re-recorded the sound of magnetic pucks on a whiteboard. The Rough Translation team includes Luis Treas and Justine Yan. Critical editorial input came from Robert Kralwich, Jacob Goldstein, Nick Fountain, and Steve Henn. So many people helped us understand the inner workings of the tech mill divide. Special thanks to Don Gansberger, Bethany Coates, Lauren Daly, Joanna Spangenberg-Jones, Terry Vanich, and Melissa Boatwright. And thanks to the families of Ben Rast and Jeremy Smith. The Rough Translation Jedi Council is Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, and Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Chris Turpin and Vicki Walton-James. Nicole Beemsterboer is our senior supervising producer. Greta Pittenger fact-checked this episode. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. Retired Army Captain Kimo Williams composed Homefront's theme song. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Homefront from Rough Translation. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce host of It's Been a Minute from NPR. And I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. 
on It's Been a Minute from NPR.